Hello, welcome to the podcast. We're back. I'm here. Uh, we're recording. We're starting a new series. It's called Relevant. And we're tackling today's biggest issues. And as I was preparing for this message, I was very intentional about talking to people about what they think about what's going on in our world today. And it was just amazing, just all the different unique views and perspectives. And some I could tell are just regurgitating something they heard on the news. And some have actually been very thoughtful in thinking about uh, what is going on. And I realize there are a lot of you out there that are asking these same questions. There are a lot of people in our congregation who are asking these questions. And so I was thinking, well, let's just tackle them. Let's just let's just look at some of these issues going on in our world and let's just speak into them. And as we speak into them, my goal is not for you to share the same opinion that I have, but it's that we all have the uh, mind of Christ in the midst of this. Uh, you know, that, that we all actually have the mind of Christ. We are all being formed in the likeness of Christ. Dallas Willard, in his book, Renovation of the Heart, he talks about how uh, we're actually to have the same thoughts of Jesus. When we are being formed spiritually, when we're being formed uh, into the likeness of Christ, that our thoughts, we actually share the same thoughts of Jesus, that our thought life is transformed. Um, and that's my hope and my prayer, and, and as I've been approaching this, is that is my hope for all of us, is that we're discerning the mind of Christ. Um, so today we're going we're gonna to talk about fake news, and it was this term that was kind of coined, uh, seemed like during the 2016 election, and it's thrown around, and I think it started kind of with the conservative voice, but you hear it all over the place. This idea of fake news, and, and what is real, and what is true, and even on social media, um, there was problems with these news stories that were being published um, that may or may not have been true. Their sources are very questionable. And what I find fascinating about this issue of fake news is that we live in a time where people have the ability to be informed um, on issues of our day more than any other human in history. You just think of the power of Google, right? You can get on your computer, your phone, your tablet, whatever you got, and you can research things and you can look up things and you can learn about things that you would have had to done hours and hours of research and time and energy going to a library. And maybe there's something good about that that we have lost, that work and wanting to know and learn about those things. But they're all at our fingertips. And, and it's also a real blessing. Uh, a few... Uh, I guess it was a few months ago, my car, my truck was having problems that as I was accelerating, I'd get to about 45 to 50 miles an hour and it would skip. Um, and it like, it wouldn't catch. And then all of a sudden it would, it would go and it'd be fine as soon as I got past that, that five mile an hour window. And so I put the symptoms, I did a YouTube search of my, the make and model of my truck and the issue and the first video that came up was somebody who had the exact same truck who had the exact same problem. And it turns out it was simply a spark plug issue that I just needed to replace the spark plugs. And so I did that and I was back on the road and my truck has been working great ever since. And it was just this reminder of what an incredible time we live in um, where you know, I saved myself a ton of money by not taking it to a shop and having them do it. Um, I, then I had to research how do I change out my spark plugs because I don't know a whole lot about that stuff. But I figured it out and, and I felt really empowered that I was able to do it myself. I was able to research and figure out how to 
um, how to fix my truck myself, where before I probably would have spent close to $1,000 just getting that taken care of. By the time you buy the spark plugs and the time in the shop and the labor and all that stuff, save myself a ton of money. Um, and, and that's amazing, right? We live in this day and age where we have access to this information, yet at the same time, we really struggle with trying to figure out what is real and what is true. We have more information, we have access to so much of it, but we're still trying to figure out what is true, what is real, and what isn't. And so we're going to look at that today. How is it that we determine what is real and what is fake? And so let's, let's, we're going to start here in Genesis and I'm going to, uh, and then eventually we're going to get into the book of John, but I, I want us to see something at the very beginning of creation. Now, when you read Genesis one, there's this pattern, um, God creates on each day and, uh, and then it follows this pattern. He says that it's good and it, it follows with, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. There was evening and morning the second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day. But then we get to the seventh day and the pattern changes. And I want us to see this. This is Genesis 2 verse 2. It says, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. So what's interesting on the seventh day is that God, there is no evening and morning. It just says that he rested. Um, and it's as, almost as if the seventh day, it has no end. This, this rest is eternal. It is ongoing. And let's go on. Let's, let's look at verse 9 here, chapter 2. It says, The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Skip down to verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now, scholars debate about what the tree of knowledge of good and evil represents, or whether Adam and Eve had a consciousness of good and evil. But what we do know is that God specifically said that all of this leads to life. You can participate in all of this stuff, but do not partake of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It will lead to death. And if you think about how it is that we survive, we have to eat, right? We, we, if you don't eat, you will die. You have to eat. You have to consume uh, food and that food is then turned into energy so that you can go to work, so that you can play, so that you can do what you do. You have to eat to survive. And what, what God is saying is, is this over here will lead to life, and this over here will lead to death. And we live in a world with many trees, and many things promise the fulfillment of life, right? There are many things that are alluring that promise life that may not actually lead to life, right? Are you with me? Have you been there? There are these things that kind of promise that are going to enrich you and fulfill you, but they actually 
don't. Let's go on here to chapter 3, verse 4. And this is the conversation that the serpent is having with Eve. And this is the serpent speaking here. It says, verse 4, You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so this is the very beginning of fake news. The serpent is telling Eve You're not going to die. In fact, you are actually going to become like God, knowing good and evil. I could imagine the first readers of this text. Many um, people attribute Genesis to um, Moses, and it was probably read by the Israelites who had been taken out of Egypt. And it's a story about origins. It's a story about how we got to where we are. And I imagine you've read chapter one and you've read chapter two and God creates, it's good. And then God puts man in this garden and it's paradise, right? And and everything is just the way it's supposed to be. You know, God creates, creates woman right out of the rib of the man and they have this perfect fellowship with the Lord. And it's interesting when you read the um, the Exodus story, and, and after the people, they, they have sinned against God. And there's this scene where Moses is about up on the mountain, and he's pleading with God. And God is, God is saying, you know what? I'm just going to send you away from here. You guys go into the land. I'm staying back. And what's fascinating is what Moses pleased to, pleads to God is he says, how will people know that you are our God if you are not with us? And so this idea of the presence of God with his people is the most important thing to the people of God, that God's presence dwells with them. And so here is Adam and Eve and God, he rests on the seventh day. It's this ongoing rest. He's with his creation. It's paradise. And it's so important that we understand that for uh, for these people, the presence of God with them is the most important thing in the world. And so I imagine as the original readers are reading this text and they get to the, the serpent where the serpent is saying, you will not certainly die. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. When we read this text, we should be screaming inside because we know what happened just before. God created them in the image of God. He created them exactly how they are intended to be, how they are supposed to be, that God is with them, their presence. It's all they need. And yet they are tempted by something else. They are tempted that they are somehow incomplete. We should be screaming when we get to this point. We're like, no, you already have it. You have what gives you life. Yet Eve is tempted by the fake news that she is somehow incomplete. That she is not created in the image of divine. In fact, she needs something else to bear the image of God. And so Eve faces the cosmic problem of hearing, but unable to discern what is actually the truth. Now, scholars over the years have raised the question of whose fault all this is. And I don't know if that's really um, a question that the text is trying to 
explain that that it was Eve's fault. It's the woman's fault. And certainly some people have made that argument. Or some say that it's not Adam did not pass on accurate information to Eve so that Eve was not able to make an informed decision. Because uh, we see that Eve, she actually adds on to, to God's word. She says that they're not to touch it. God doesn't say you can't touch it. They could have touched it. They could have thrown it. They could have played baseball with it, football. Whatever they wanted to do with the fruit, they could have done. They just said not to eat it. God said not to eat it. But in the rabbinic tradition, they have this third way of looking at it. And they ask the question, where is Adam in all of this? The story revolves around God creating, then he places Adam in the garden. Then out of Adam, he creates Eve. And then all of a sudden, Adam seems absent. And so the rabbinic tradition asks the question, where is Adam? And they would say he's actually right alongside Eve the whole time. That he's not off somewhere else, but he's actually right there. And the problem is, is that he is silent in the midst of it. And so we face the same problem in our day and age. It seems tough to discern and determine what is right and what is good. We have more ways to access information than ever before, and yet everything seems very cloudy of what is right and what is wrong, what is true and what is not. And so this is the exact place the enemy wants to put us. It's what the enemy does to Eve. It's this temptation that you are somehow incomplete and that you need more. And so Eve begins to question what is actually true and what is right. And we find ourselves in the same position And it raises the question, how do we know what is actually true? How do we see things for how they really are? Which leads us to another question, what is actually shaping us? What shapes you and influences you will affect your ability to actually know what is true and what is fake. So let's look at the Gospel of John because we we see this issue rise up again in John uh, and Jesus confronts it head on. So the scene, we're going to look at John chapter 6, starting in verse 14, in just a second. But prior to this, Jesus has just performed this incredible miracle uh, where he's fed 5,000 people. And uh, and so Jesus, this is what Jesus does after that. It's kind of fascinating. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intending to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. This is a very pivotal verse, and and it kind of sets up the tension of this scene here, is that we have this group of people that have been formed a certain way in the world to believe that the world works in a certain kind of way. And so here Jesus is, he's performing miracles among them, that they, they're seeing things that they have never seen before, and they are, they are correct to say that this is the Messiah, right? This is, this is the prophet that was to come into the world. This is the one who is to set things right, yet there's a problem. They operate in the world. They want Jesus to operate in the world the way that they see how the world works. See, the core belief of these people is that Jesus needs to rule as king over them in their way that they understand kings to rule and reign. And I think that this idea has kind of been formed 
um, in them from their history and their culture. You know, in Israel's history, they've had a, a history of kings. Um, some were good, but most of them kind of led Israel down a path um, towards destruction. And so it didn't work out all that well, but there's comfort in having this central king, the central ruler, and this was central to Israel's story, that they, they, they had these kings that ruled over them. But then there's also the Roman Empire model in which they, they live under, and they are ruled by an empire that uses force to keep people in line, and the belief is if we just had the right person leading this, then we would all arrive, we would all have what we want, we would be the people in power. And so it's interesting, the way that they are informed by what Jesus should do is by their culture around them. By what's going on around them is what informs of how they, how this Jesus should interact with the world. And, and they are bent, their hearts are bent, and this is the way it needs to happen. And Jesus is very much aware of their cultural biases. Jesus is very much aware of how... Um, they want Jesus to rule and reign, and so what he does is he withdraws from them. It's interesting that he withdraws from them when they try to make him do something that he doesn't he's not called to do, that he's not supposed to do. He removes himself from them. That's fat, that's a whole nother sermon right there. I think that's good stuff. But then there's this interaction. They end up catching up with Jesus. Jesus walks on water, and the crowd catches up to him on the other side. And and, and here's where the dialogue picks up and Jesus answered them, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. And so it's sometimes easy for us, we can see, all right, there's a very clear parallel that this food... The food that spoils, the food that spoils that they want is this idea of this king that's going to rule over them right then and there and make everything all right for them and nice and comfortable. Right? That's the kind of food that spoils, and that's kind of the world, the mind that they have. That's the fake news, if you will, that they have bought into. Let's go on to verse 28. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work God Uh, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. You could already see that Jesus' language is much bigger than theirs. Verse 34, Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. 
And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Isn't this the very place we find ourselves? Jesus is proclaiming that there is life in him. And Jesus is giving this much bigger picture of what he is about. He's about this whole world. He's about raising people in the last day to have eternal life. And it's interesting, uh, that phrase, bread of life, the word for life there in the Greek, there are kind of three different words for life. But the one that Jesus uses, and it alludes to it later on in the text, is eternal life. Now, eternal life has a past aspect to it. It has a present aspect to it, and it has a future aspect to it. And so the problem is, is the people that Jesus is interacting with is they think of life as this very thing that happens in the present, that what's going to make, what what do they need right there in the present to have life? But actually what Jesus is doing is he's alluding to something that has always been from the very beginning, is here in the present with you, and goes on into the future. See, what does God give Adam and Eve in the garden, the tree of life, to eat from? It's the source of sustenance. The Hebrew word for life in Genesis also means raw. It's the very essence. And so what I see Jesus doing in this text is Jesus is saying that that through him, the humanity, the raw essence, the truth, the ultimate reality, what is true yesterday, true today, and certainly true in the future is right here in front of you. And what he is about doing is far bigger than becoming your king the way that you see it. See, why is this hard for them to hear? They were the ones who wanted him to rule as king and go and take over. And so what Jesus is asking them to do is something far harder and richer and far more eternal. Their solution is to go and make him king, but Jesus is asking something far, far deeper. He's asking them to re-examine where life actually comes from. When Jesus talks about he himself is the bread of life, he is, he is pitting against their view of where life comes from and where life actually comes from. They have been formed by fake news. They have been formed by this alternate reality of how life works. And what Jesus is asking them to do is to re-examine where life actually comes from. And that's really hard when you have been formed in a certain way, in a certain way of seeing the world, when Jesus confronts you and asks you, where does life actually come from? See, the crowd is the victim of fake news. They have bought into the story about power and authority and ruling over people with the belief that they will receive life through power. And so the question for us, I think we have to examine where life actually comes from. Where do we receive life? Where does that actually come from? Where are the places we're looking for it? And I want to highlight four ways, and these are outlined in uh, in a book called Embracing Exile by Scott Daniels. These four aspects, he calls them stories that people live into. 
And I believe these stories are, are the places where people look for life, where they look for meaning, where they look for depth. And, uh, and, and I think these are very common in our culture today. These are these common stories that we buy into, that we believe will bring us life. And the first one is this. It's the success story. The success story is about accumulating wealth and power and pleasures and experiences. Now, it's interesting. When I look at um, the millennial generation, I'm kind of on the back end of the millennial generation The success story for the millennials isn't necessarily in accumulating more, but it's accumulating more experiences, pleasurable experiences. This is played out in sexuality. This is also played out just on Instagram, right? It's about who can have the most experiences to post and to share, and it is a measure of success by how interesting the story you post is is that's the success story is that what actually leads to life i think i think we need to examine what jesus is asking us to examine is that where life comes from is that what brings you life is that is that everlasting is that eternal or maybe there's the nation story and the nation story is people who find their primary identity within a certain culture, race, or language. The things that matter the most in that story are wealth, power, expansion, and stability of one's nation. And so this is a very popular story. Many people have lived and died embracing this story. And it points to our desire to belong, to have identity, because we are lost. And we're going to talk about um, patriotism next week. Um, But I think we find comfort in this idea of belonging. We find comfort in people who are like us, whether it be race, sexuality, religion. And so what we do is we dig our heels in and we find comfort in identifying with people who share the same things that we do. That they have this common thread and we actually believe that maybe this brings us life because there is this comfort in numbers. Another story that I think we live that we think brings us life is the humanist story. And has become very popular in this day and age. And, and the point of this story is that it's to help humanity become better. And while there's much to, to admire about the story, in the end, it's not rooted in anything deeper than, let's just try to make today, tomorrow better than today. Right? I think that that's kind of like the, the branding of, uh, of technology companies. The promise of technology is that we will... We will advance, we'll become more advanced, better in the future. We're helping humanity move forward, but it's but ultimately it ends up in despair because it's just, it's not rooted in anything. And then what happens is some of us, we actually live out all of these stories. That it's not we just it's not that we just live the success story or the nation story or the humanist story, but we live them all out at the same time. We mix and match and we put them together, and it creates quite a cocktail, doesn't it? We might even mix in some of the Jesus story in there. 
And I was having this conversation with somebody the other day, and they were asking me, how do we reach people when people are all over the place? Doesn't it feel like that? When people are all over the place, they're influenced by the success story, the nation story, the humanist story. They're living out all these things, maybe with a little Jesus thrown in. And you can see how when we live out these complex narratives, when we believe that all these different things will lead to life, that if we just do this, then we will have life, it makes it very hard to discern what is actually true. It makes it very hard to discern what is good and what is bad. What is real and what is fake. So how do we who have been formed by so many competing views discern what is true and what is fake? And it comes to what Jesus is calling these people to do. They have to re-examine their life and ask, where does life come from? And, and as an evangelical um, Christian, friend, Quaker, I believe that our lives have to center around the story and gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus. That we, our lives, have to be intimately formed and transformed by Jesus. And that we believe that Jesus is the one that transforms us. Jesus is the one that forms us. Jesus is the one who gives us life. The same way that Adam and Eve made the choice to be formed by something other than what gives them life, we are given the choice to enter into this life-giving story of God. That is what Jesus is calling his believers to at that very moment in John. He's inviting them to feast on him. He is the source of life, and he wants to be the center of their garden. See, the Genesis story is our story. We have all eaten from the tree. We have all bought into the fake news of where life comes from. And Jesus is calling him back. He's saying, I want you to feast on me. I am the source of life. Let's go back to Genesis for a moment. After Adam and Eve sinned, they cover themselves. They find themselves hiding among the trees in shame and patching together their own clothes. And they're afraid of God. Maybe when we look to the success story, the humanist story, the nation story, we mix them all together, it's our way of hiding ourselves when we realize our own nakedness. And we're just trying to make it better. We're just trying to find a way to deal. We're just trying a way to find a way to cope with this life, the challenges of this life. And what's fascinating about after Adam and Eve, they cover themselves, God begins looking for them. And he asks this question. He says, where are you? This isn't about a physical location, but it's about their state. It's about your state. It's about our state. In the midst of all of this mess, where are you? Where are you? See, Jesus is inviting you into the ultimate truth, the one that gives life and sustenance. And we have all bought into the fake news and allowed it to shape our destiny as the children of God. But today, Jesus is calling you back to himself, to the one who is life. So in the midst of all this confusion, in the midst of these people claiming this is real and this is fake, Maybe this is God's way of getting our attention and saying, where are you? 
It's God's way of calling his people back to himself. So the next time you find yourself trying to figure out what is true, what is good, what is right, what is honest, what is, what's going on in this situation, may we turn to Jesus. May we turn to his words. May we turn to the life that is promised in him. Because when we hear those words, fake news, it's God's way of saying, where are you? Because with Jesus, there is life, there is hope, there is joy, there is goodness, there is gladness, there is rejoicing, there is redemption, there is restoration. Where are you today?